Agus kid foil to roid a coid in a mile. Kid foil to go kirkig er an ukoid workshop. And a very, very hearty welcome to you to this brand new opera house in Cork. I'm sitting here in the fifth row of the stalls. Stones throw more or less from the band of the Southern Command, which is on stage playing, as you can hear. There's a capacity house. It's a gala occasion. Every person here is in evening dress. The front of the stage is banked with pink chrysanthemums. The front of house curtain is in gold. The overall colour scheme here in the theatre itself... Every fellow will tell you where he was when John F. Kennedy was shot. It's the same thing. Well, every fellow will tell you where he was the night the outpost was, was on fire. December 1955 saw the end of an era in Cork and uh, one of the great institutions was that uh, if you went down for early doors uh, you got the best seats up in the gallery. When the Cork Opera House burnt down there were early doors no more. The interior of the old opera house was not that different to the interiors of a great many Victorian period theatres and opera houses in Ireland and in Britain. The description in the newspaper of, of the, the, the opening of it in, in the 1870s, when it had been refurbished, was that it was a very rich interior, there was a lot of gilt, there was a lot of rich colours, um, dark reds, dark greens, beautiful scenery, hand-painted scenery. It, it was that very lush Victorian interior and it retained that character right up until the fire. It had what some opera houses still have. Uh, I, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Italian ones now, like uh, La Scala, for example, in Milan, or even the Rome Opera House. A, a smell of, you could truthfully say, generations of people who had sat on those seats and enjoyed, enjoyed, enjoyed. And the great thing about it was that the Opera House was a truly democratic place. You had the gods, you had the dress circle, you had the front stalls and the back stalls. Literally everybody could afford to go to the Opera House and went to the Opera House. So it was nothing at all unusual to sort of go up to the gods and have a fantastic bird's eye view of everything. Uh, there were people up there who would sort of like drop the odd thing down on the people in the dress circle, especially if somebody had a bald head truly um, godlike place because uh, it was a fantastic old building and there was such a huge ceiling there with uh, beautiful lights and it, a domed ceiling but there was definitely um, a not unpleasant uh, smell of antiquity and of literally being lived in because it was very much a theatre that was lived in I don't know that you'd call the buildings of those days beautiful, but they certainly had character, there's no doubt about that. And uh, this one, it was full of what I used to call, or what I do call now, Edwardian opulence, you know. Every piece of upholstery was red plush and gold braid, and whenever they could be introduced, tassels, you know, dangling nice. tassels. And the makeup of it was so nice. There were two tiers of boxes at either side of the stage, three, one above the other. You couldn't see from them, of course, didn't matter, especially the top one, you crack your neck if you saw the stage, because you'd have to come out very far. But the lower one was nice, and uh, at that time, when I was young, uh, it, it was uh, the habit of the British officers from the barracks to come down and occupy the boxes whenever they could, and especially if they were musical comedy. 
And we had quite a lot of good artists. Mary Studham came, Zena Dare and her sister. And, you know, that type of thing, they were quite, quite well done. Oh, it was wonderful. The journey from the foyer to the dress circle. I always arrived late because I was absolutely mesmerised by all the photographs and the old prints along the corridors. Sarah Bernhardt, Henry Irving in The Bells, all the great actor managers of the 30s, Sir Beerbohm Tree and his company, Frank Benson, <coughs> Harry Lauder. So it, it was really a, a, a haunting place. It was old, I suppose, and dingy towards the end. In fact, we did a complete refurbishing of it the, the week before it burned down, and it was in really beautiful order the night it burnt, glistening with all the old splendour of the gilt paint and the red cushioning and everything. It was really looking beautiful that night, and a few hours later it was gone. But it was a warm place. It was built entirely of wood. It used to give the local fire brigade chief here nightmares because he knew if, if, if ever there was a bit of fire or trouble, you know, that it would go up like matchstick, which it did in the, in the end, you know. But it had a wonderfully resonant tone to, to music and it had a warmth. The exterior of the old opera house was unique to Cork because the building that it was in was originally a, an exhibition building for the National Exhibition that was held in Cork in 1852. When that National Exhibition ended, the main exhibition hall was transported over to the site of the present Opera House. It was known then as the Athenaeum or Athenaeum. It was built on a site beside what's now the Crawford Art Gallery between that very fine red brick building and the river. And it had bow ends at, at both ends. It had very fine pillars and it had, it had a classical kind of theme to it. And it operated as a sort of lecture hall and for concerts and so on for many years because when it was moved over in 1855, there was still a Theatre Royal in Cork which was like the equivalent of, of, of an opera house, which was where the present um, GPO is. Looking at photographs of it, it looks very substantial. In fact, when you look at it, you wonder how it could burn so completely, you know, because even after the fire, the, the walls were left, but um, obviously the, the whole centre of it was gone. For my part, I remember the Carl Rosa Company, and I had my, my heroes, Elena Danielli, I remember, and Lula Pikin. And I can remember being in Cork on a, an afternoon at about half past three during the Carl Rosa visit and seeing the steps, the outside steps on the way up to the gallery, queue all the way up and down the footpath, waiting for the uh, what they called early doors. My father, who came from Ballady Hob to Carrigaline, to live in Carrigaline, he was having worked on our house. And the builders, the builders all during the Carl Rosa opera season, they all stopped early at three o'clock to go, into the, go to the opera house to queue up. That was amazing, something that has never been seen since. And then, of course, it all ended temporarily in 1955. The, the crowds going up to the station to meet the stars coming in and uh, dispensing with the horses and putting the carriages into town. And they'd insist then on one of the opera stars, be it a soprano or a tenor, Tenors were always greatly beloved in Cork and they'd have to go out on the balcony of the Imperial Hotel or the Vic and sing a, an aria and it was like the, the night of an All-Ireland team coming home with the crowds in the street and everybody applauding. And of course there were great impromptu concerts up in the, in the old 
bar up, at the, up in the back of the garden. It was a big circular bar right under the roof of the theatre. There were five or six guys in the brewery and they were all into the, into the operas. But we'd finish at the brewery at, at five o'clock and we'd go straight down Oliver Punker Street to Buckley's, it was called at the time, and we'd have milk and cakes and we'd go over to the early doors. Remember the, the, the iron stairs up the side? Hail, rain and snow, we'd be up there and we'd be first in and they'd be waiting for the operas. It's only about one and six or one. I was, I had things then on. You'd see the prices, sixpence for the programme. From five o'clock, they'd open the they'd, they'd open the doors about seven o'clock, you know. So you'd be there if it was raining, like you'd be unlucky, and we'd be in then, and we'd, you know, it was uh, all timber timber seating, massive atmosphere there all, all together. Even for the and you get dead silence when the singers would be on. There was no Mickey Mouse, and there were all people who knew what they were there for. Everybody chatting across the place, and and everybody would know you'd know everybody almost who were there. They were all the same aficionados every time, you know. They'd be great crack. There would be pandemonium at home. If my mother knew I was come to the gallery, not to mind going alone, I would have been about 15. But when the door opened, my feet never touched the ground from that moment till I got up into my seat. I don't remember paying. I never got to the ticket office. But the press of the crowd was so great that I was small. It had one benefit, it got me into the front row. And they sang and they whistled and they knew the opera and they encouraged the actors or discouraged them for wretches. I remember one, well, it was that, actually that performance. It was Il Trovatore and the tenor wasn't terribly good, but he was all right. But evidently he knew that the top note was not going to come off. So he flung up his arm in a wide gesture to take the attention off his voice. But the relentless note came down from the gallery. Don't point to it, boy. Sing it. and the light musicals, the operettas, um, Gilbert and Sullivan and so on, were very popular and they would have dominated the fair on offer at the Opera House. Um, but you also had Shakespeare. Um, Shakespearean plays were always popular uh, throughout. And of course you had uh, Father O'Flynn and The Loft in, in Cork. You had touring groups bringing in musicals as well as operas. Then you would have had pantomime and you would have had all of the sort of occasional maybe short-run performances, you know, magicians and the, f- the full range, really. At certain periods, if things weren't so well, you know, there might be periods where the opera house would be closed. For example, in, in the summer, I think it would have been the 1920s, quite often it would might have been closed. And, and then one of the managers brought in the Carl Clope Company, who brought in a drama... Um, highly successful then and that kind of reinvigorated the summer seasons and a great many of the touring companies that came to Cork you know would have been ones that were were based in the UK. I was with my parents because they had worked out they were in the orchestra you see and uh, they were violinists and uh, my aunt Edie was the musical director at the piano 
uh, in the Opera House Orchestra. My mother got a chair, put a beer crate on top of the chair, put a cushion on top of that and said, sit on that and don't move. The next thing was all the noise of the kids coming in, the sense of sort of anticipation. It was absolutely wonderful because, of course, I had no idea. It was my first time ever in any theatre anywhere. Then the red light on the little little piece of wood uh, in front of the stage turned to green. And then we had the overture, as it turned out later. That's what it was. How was I to know it was an overture? I was only four years old. And then hooray, hooray for the Christmas pantomime. Now, I always remember the melody went through my head. Hooray, hooray for the Christmas pantomime. As far as I was concerned, this was heaven. Cork was a very grey city in those days, you know. Uh, people were very poor. And you took it for granted that about one third of the population were shawlies. Say a shawlie today and nobody would know what the hell you were talking about, you know. That was my very first experience that, uh, of theatre and of the opera house, uh, the sense of colour, the music, the sense that everybody was smiling and laughing. I was only married in September 55 and I was working in Thompson's, wasn't I, driving a van. I was on £7, four shillings a week, but I was booked for the opera house at £15 a week. And I, when the opera house went up, I thought my world had come to an end by. I hadn't a bob, I hadn't a stick of furniture, I had a suite of furniture, and I had a, a kitchen table, and I, I had four chairs in the kitchen table that I think I stole out of Adam at your hall, and, and that's all I had. <laughs> and there was no uh, higher purchase at the time of credit unions, and on my word of on and out, where I in a suite of furniture, nearly myself uh, inside and wrote the stores, this, we were going to buy the suite of furniture, or the apples, our first bit of furniture. And the night the apples went to fire, I went home pretty late, and remember she was in the back bedroom, sitting up, reading Woman's Own, and then I always remember she said to me, my God, Jim Stack kept me uh, very late tonight in rehearsals. Come on, I want just as I. The red, the sky that night in Cockwoods, a scarlet red. Isn't that beautiful, she, she. That's a roly-boly Alice. I said, roly-boly Alice, me arse, I said, that's our sitting room, gone up in smoke. Not a thespian, but a stage door, Johnny. And I, I was stage-struck from the age of uh, six when I went to my first pantomime in 1931. I knew it was an English travelling company, and I can remember one of the songs. I can remember a chorus, a male chorus, of about ten Santa Clauses singing a song that was quite popular, I believe, at the time. Does Santa Claus sleep with his whiskers all on, all over or under the sheets? I was hooked on the theatre from then on, absolutely. I was dreaming pantomime, I was dreaming theatre, and uh, I loved every aspect of the theatre, opera, light opera. It's, it's a shame that no company would resurrect some of those lovely old musical comedies. I did two panthers in the old opera house before it burned down. Of course, I did all the Gilbert and Sullivan shows there with the pirates and the HMS Pinafore and gondoliers and Rodigor. And there was some kind of an atmosphere about it, but to sing, that was beautiful. And there was no mics that time. You know, it was on, get it out and get it up onto the gods. And I remember being in... Um, in the Pirates, Dick Mason, who was with the Dublin Grand Opera, big bass voice, big man as well. He worked with players. Mary O'Mara, she was a beautiful contralto, absolutely beautiful voice. And I was in the middle. And there was a thing in it, it was called um, a paradox. A paradox, a paradox, a most ingenious paradox. And it, uh, 
They're the two of them blowing it out. And I said to Morris McMahon one day, Jesus, Morris, I said, I'm sure I'm not being heard at all. You know, two were booming into my ear. I said, I couldn't be heard. I, I have a break now. He says, and I'll go up and I'll hear it during the paradox. I went out here. He says, the only voice coming up to the gods, he says, is yours. Because <laughs> my voice was pitched. And they were all, they were all boom, boom, booming. And then I was delighted. I was, I was thrilled. a must for people. That was it, the Opera House. They come out Monday night and they spread the good word and from that on, one of my greatest critics long ago was down the court because she was a Monday nighter. They'd be all telling you when you come off the stage how good you were, but I I wanted to hear hers, you see, and it'd go down the court key on the Tuesday morning and I'd Chris, come here a while. I was in last night. I didn't like the soprano, she was very trotty. Very trotty. And come here, when you came down that time with the girl, you found that a bit difficult. She'd be out of putting her finger in it, you know. I'd, what happened by to loosen out during the week? <laughs> <laughs> you know, these were people, do you know? And they weren't afraid to voice their opinion, you know. All the ads were on the fire curtain. Do you remember those are all you doing? You had Nat Ross, you had Barry's tea, you had uh, Lipton's, I have no clue no. But you could spend uh, 20 minutes going through the ads, first of all. And there was a special warmth, a special tradition. I remember the Cork Operatic put on the desert song. And Christian, a man I loved and loved so much, tremendous character. He played the Red Shadow, didn't he? You remember Chris now, those big teeth, the smiley teeth, and those roguish look in his eye. By God, could he get an audience? I remember years ago, an English company came and did the desert song. And I remember walking out at the interval, and a complete stranger just passed me. And he said, well, we'll have eyes to see. There was only one red shadow. He didn't have to say another word or mention the name. We'll have eyes, there was only one red shadow. And how right he was. I was out there in the love scene with uh, Josephine O'Hagan, lovely girl she was too, she was playing Margot. There were boxes and I, you know, three boxes on either side, you see. I'd, I walked away for it, directed, and turned and looked up, you see, and the next thing is fell inside in the box. Hello, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this girl, Josephine O'Hagan, she is an extraordinary sense of humour. You only put up your finger to it. Well, all I could do in a, a serious love seat to see this one, she breaking her heart laughing, and I, at sea, didn't know where I was. But he was nice, Chris was an all tough as well. Notorious for, for lines. He could miss lines, and he could. He found it very hard to get up scripts now, and, and the libretto and all that. In, in one of the shows now, we, we played, it was Babes in the Wood, I think, we played two guards. In tabs, now this was, and I walk. We were singing the Baccarol, the two beautiful Baccarol, like the, the, the tenor and baritone. So we came on anyway, and I, I walked on stage on cue, of course, the usual, down the Mardi. Chris was supposed to be in the Mardi, and Chris would throw a line at me halfway across the stage. I was nearly gone off left, and there was the word over to Chris. And the next thing Chris says, Well, young fellow, he says, You're very silent tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you were very quiet yourself or something like that, you know. Not at all. Jeez, I, I, I think do a big, a big double take and try and come back to... And then, because the orchestra would be giving the introduction through the dialogue, you know. Plum, 
plum, plum, plum, plum. <laughs> Another haunting memory of the old opera house was in September 1939. The London production of White Horse Inn came to the opera house for a three-week tour, and then it was going to go on to Dublin. War was declared, Britain was at war with Germany, and the leading lady, Nita Croft, came on stage and she said, I'm sorry to say we have to go back to London, we were to play for another week, but we've been called back, my country is at war, uh, the lights are going out all over London and we may, we may never meet again. And she burst into tears and so did half the audience. Wonderful scenery, it was the first revolving stage that lots of people had seen in Cork. There was mountain scenery, it was set in Austria, and uh, the lovely Nita Croft was looking for her lover in the mountains, and she was saying, Hans, Hans, where are you? And there was the inevitable voice from the gallery, He's up here, miss! <laughs> the man I looked up to of all time was Nancy Comerford. I've never said this in public before now, but I remember one night I went to the OH soccer club, used to bring Benz to the City Hall, Joe Loss, Geraldo, and I remember Nancy Comfort was walking along with his wife, Peggy Keating, who I know well too. And you know, I stopped and watched them going around. I admired them so much. He had everything as a dame, all right, I'm big and I'm kind of chubby, but he was small and tidy. Facial expression was brilliant, and that poor lad was, was very unlucky. He got sick in 1953, and uh, he was huge at the time. He was doing a radio show uh, called The Real Blarney, and he was doing straight plays with James Stack. We got sick, as you know, and we became great, great, great friends. I often dropped out to the host him, and he was coming to the show to me. And it was a little sad thing, nobody, he was come up to my wife, Nell. He knew Nell very well from the old days. And he sat home one night, and we had a little drop, and, you know, he was, you'd have to get words out of him, you know, they, 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 but they, you know, get words out of him. And as sure as you're talking to Bilal here, he couldn't say the word pantomime. And man, that was pantomime. I can see him sitting by the fire on the old arm down chair, and he couldn't, but they did better. And you know, my poor old wife, Nil, she filled up and she went, nay, she couldn't say the word pantomime. As firemen in, in that time, that period at the Opera House Fire now, we worked 84 hours a week. Incredible. 96 hours one week, 72 the next, averaging out at 84. We worked 24 hour shifts, 24 on, 24 off. Uh, if you work it out at £7 a week, we were working for roughly like two shillings an hour. Manpower was a big problem in the 50s. We had um, two watches with something like 10 men on each watch. So you had a total of 20 men. And your response to most fires at that time, even the opera house, would be just eight men. Now, that's not adequate at all, certainly, you know. Uh, if you're fighting a fire like the opera house with these walls in it, fairly high walls, and you're trying to do it from street level, if you can't get into the building, if it's that severe, like it's it's really a burnout situation, you just protect the adjoining buildings and houses across the street. I don't think he's 100% certain, but it's thought it's, it, it may have started in, in the roof, but there may have been an electrical fault, I don't know. And one of the earlier theatres in Cork, um, the Theatre Royal, was had been destroyed by fire in 1840, and, you know, everything gone. So it, the, the fire in, in 1955 was, in a sense, like a repeat of that. In the period before electricity, of course, just the sheer number of candles and, and uh, lighting around the place, gas, lighting and uh, laterally electricity, you know, they're, they're very vulnerable. It, it was a very old building, so you'd have had a lot of old wood 
in it. You'd have had curtains, ropes, um, paint for scenery, scenery stored, costumes, and you also had a void. You know, you also had a place where the, the fire could sort of suck energy from. I remember responding to the fire. I, I'm not sure of the time. I'm sure it was after tea, around 8 o'clock. When we got to the fire, there was sort of a lot of smoke around the roof area. Didn't appear to be anybody in the building. Just as uh, the officer in charge was sort of trying to sum up the situation, like we started to make down to hiding and that, uh, there was a, a long iron staircase at the side of the building, uh, which was a fire escape actually, but which, which was used for people to exit the guards. They used to come down that way. Two firemen went up that stairs to see if they could see where the smoke was coming from. There was like a lot of smoke around the roof area. When, when they were about two thirds of the way out, the fire burst out through the roof at the top of that stairs there. That was the first indication that there was well. We knew there was a fire there, but that was a severe fire. From what I remember, anyway, within a quarter or 20 minutes, the, 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 the fire was well through parts of the roof, you know. It, a, a blaze, a, a fairly major blaze had commenced. That time it was everybody's wish to get to the Opera House. And I started in the Father O'Leary Hall in 1948, and I made the Opera House in 1955, the night the Opera House went on fire. As a matter of fact, I never played the old Opera House. We were rehearsing upstairs in the old barn. Remember the old barn, the theatre, up in the old gallery, up in the gods? My God, it was a beautiful spot, haunted with, with, with memories and no, no tradition. And we were rehearsing because the tiny tots were on stage. And that's why we were rehearsing on stage. And as sure as Bill and chatting to you know, uh, Bill Toomey was, was with us. And I was near to Bill Toomey now. The night the hop house went on fire, when I heard them phoning the fire brigade, would they send over somebody to investigate? And he didn't want any clanging of bells. And, like, uh, you know, there was smoke kind of coming out of this place and that place. And Jim Stack says, we better leave, lads. We went downstairs. And I remember Paddy Carter asked Jim Stack, is uh, will we finish the rehearsal? No, says Jim, we'll come back, he says, when the fireman will investigate. And I went out and stood by Christie Ringbridge with a fellow by the name of Sean Reardon. He was a great actor, too. And, you know, this wasn't the roof ablaze. The roof was ablaze. And I uh, remember Sean said to me, Billy, by it would be a shell in the morning. And how right he was. The burning was, it was a tragic event. It, happily, it had no tragedy as such. We didn't lose life, but it was a pretty shattering night. Uh, we have many theories, of course, but you couldn't. Uh, there was nothing left except the shell, just, you know, the walls of the building, nothing left. And you couldn't possibly deduce what caused it. I was in my office at the front opening pantomime bookings. We were rehearsing for the pantomime at the time and uh, the children were on stage, the little tiny tots and cute kiddies. And the main people were up in a bar upstairs under James Stack. I, I smelt burning in the theatre and I wondered what it was. I rang the fire brigade and uh, asked them to come over to check because I was a little uneasy. But before they came, uh, there was a, a bang at the window and uh, it was Ted Whitaker had come across the river. He has an office on the other side of the river and he saw flames coming through the roof and he banged on my window and said, there are flames coming out of the roof of the theatre bill. And of course I dialed 999. The fire brigade came over, but I, I knew even then that uh, it was such an old building that, uh, that this was the end. Pantomime, oddly enough, was the Sleeping Beauty. A strange facet of the thing is this moved over then to be produced over at the AOH Hall, and that burnt also. We made down, got jets out, and uh, but it soon became obvious to us, like them, to the officer in charge. It was a major fire. 
So the main concern then was to protect the School of Art. And that's basically where most of the firefighting was done, protecting the School of Art, because there wasn't much we could do with the rest of the building. Eventually, anyway, after about an hour or so, an hour and a half, and for a few hours after that, it was a very, very intense blaze. Firebrands from it, like sparks and all the embers burning embers, allegedly landed up, at, which I'm sure they did, up Shandon Street, Blarney Street and places like that. The heat from it was a real threat to the buildings across the Half Moon Street. Now, there was very one unsung hero of the whole night that time. That was a man who wasn't a member of the brigade at all, Johnny Manny. He was a turncock in the waterworks. Now, Johnny was a great asset at any major fire in the city, and he was at most of them. He diverted water to that fire, and so there was a vast supply of water. There was plenty of water there. In fact, there were jets taken straight off the mains to protect the houses in Half Moon Street. At one stage in the fire, there was a virtual curtain of water down Half Moon Street. Fire was so intense like that, these buildings were in real danger from the radiated heat from the fire. We were standing around, lashing rain, the wind beating down to us, and for me, my world had ended. There was a, a very toffy lady next to me, and then something says, she said, I hope they save the School of Art. And I can't reply, when a fellow next to me says about the School of Art. He's walking on Focalilla about the School of Art. I spent most of my time on the School of Art side, and there was great credit due that night to also to the staff and some volunteers in the School of Art. They evacuated all the exhibits and contents of that building further down into another wing of the uh, school. Of course, we hardly noticed the rain, you know, like we were drenched in water from the fire anyway. It was a very, very bad night, very, very heavy rain and wind. I remember going back to the appliance and it was soaking about that open appliance now. All the cushions, there were water and all the cushions there. As when we left the line, it was nearly four o'clock in the morning when the first uh, cruise went back to the station. Once it took hold, it really did take hold very quickly. And in fact, when they were fighting the fire, there's a description of some of the firefighters who actually had to abandon some of their equipment and run you know, at one stage because the fire was moving so quickly. So it was very, very fortunate that nobody was, was hurt or, or, or killed, either in the fire itself or in, in the fighting of it as well. Some people were, you know, actually in the city centre and saw it. Some people heard about it and were drawn to it. And other people, you know, even perhaps living out in, in the sort of western suburbs, I've, I've heard people describe how they could see the glow in the sky. They couldn't possibly see the opera house, but they could see the glow. The fire was so intense and it was a stormy night and there was rain. The wind just fanned the flames and the rain wasn't sufficient to, to make any impact on the fire at all. So there was a great drama in a sense to the to the fire. It wasn't, you know, just like a, a small smouldering fire. It was a, a really appallingly glorious blaze. And you can see that in the photographs, even though the black and white photographs, you can just see the intensity of the flame coming out from the centre of the opera house. People were looking at it with huge emotion because the fire itself was enormously spectacular. Yes, I know exactly where I was. I was playing badminton in St John's Hall, the club opposite the Victoria Hospital. And about eight or nine o'clock, somebody looked out and said, there's smoke. So we took no notice. And the same person then said, there's lots of smoke. So we abandoned badminton, made our way. And I had grim forebodings. I said, let it be anything, let it be anything. Uh, I was even sacrilegiously made. It can't even be a church. <laughs> but may it not be the opera house. And we got nearer. And it was the opera house. And we stood there in the rain and watching the flames. And then I had a worse fear because 
1954, I had met a lovely London girl who had come to live in Ballinine with her mother. And I proposed to her, and she was reluctant to come to Cork because she was she had just completed a course in stagecraft at the London School of Drama at the Albert Hall. And I persuaded her that, well, look, we have a lovely opera house here. So we got married in 1955, and the one condition she made was that I would allow her to get off the island once a year, which I gave readily. <laughs> Couldn't stop it anyway. In due course, in December 1955, she headed off to London. Once that fire got established and the roof collapsed and the cement blaze started within the walls of the opera house, it became obvious to everybody that uh, you couldn't put that fire out. It was just, just a blaze out, like, you know, it was going to be a burnout. Some of the lads said, look across that Pope's Quay, Mulgrave Road, it was like a, like a stand at a stadium, you know, there were people, hundreds of people up there and along and the steps of uh, St Mary's Church there. Uh, one of the uh, people above watching it on that night was uh, Pam McGrath, the Lord Mayor at the time. And uh, somebody, a friend of ours who was with Pam McGrath at the time, who was well known to the fire brigade, uh, said it to Pam, you know, he said there's only about eight men over there fighting that fire in the early stages. He just couldn't believe it. And another stage during the uh, fire, some enterprising group brought a, a rowing boat up the river to have a sort of a grandstand view of the thing, and one of them fell into the water. So the, a couple of the lads had to go and rescue him, but I, I think it was easily dealt with. The fellas in the boat got him back in, and they threw a life by out to him. You wouldn't be aware of what was going on around you at all, you know, really. You know, be like the fire would be the main thing, really, you know, and especially if you were on the ground floor in Half Moon Street and you were in there fighting the fire. We were on jets from windows uh, on the School of Art side. I was there most of the night with a fella called uh, Jim Buckley. The night of the fire, I was at home uh, thinking about uh, exams because we were coming up to the Christmas exams in primary school in Prez and uh, my parents were talking about uh, going in for rehearsals. Uh, there was a big ring on the front doorbell followed by a big hammering on the inside door. My Aunt Edie came in and she said, the opera house is gone. That, it would be probably the same thing as if somebody kind of walked into your house and said the City Hall is gone. You know, you just, City Hall is solid. I mean, who, who, how could it happen to the City Hall? And uh, we all went out to the front door and you could see the flickering of the flames, uh, even from our place out in Glasheen. You could see the, the glow in the night sky. Then, of course, uh, when I got to school, uh, everybody was sort of saying, Hey, Paul, your house is gone. And I just, only then I suddenly realised that sort of I had been a source of a combination of envy, mistrust and various other things, but that I was OK now that the opera house was gone. I was too young, of course, to realise what exactly was gone, like that a huge chunk of my childhood stopped just there and just then. The shock, even today, it's, it was indescribable. We were rehearsing for the Christmas pantomime and a few hours later there was just four bare walls, nothing, nothing. I, I stepped into the ruins at five o'clock in the morning with the fire chief and uh, quite frankly, I was on the floor. I had seen my staff around me in tears during the night, uh, broken and um, some of them were, I was young enough then, although I had a young family and it was a hell of a worry at the time, I remember well, but some of them were older and had been there a long time. It, it was a most depressing thing to see in the dawn of winter's morning, just nothing all the tradition of a hundred years gone and everybody out of a job just for Christmas. It was a shattering blow and I smelt burning in my nose and nostrils for about six months afterwards. I used to wake up in the night with a, 
a sense of fear and you know from the talk we heard at the time that there was some work the upper house was closed anyway wasn't it and there was some work going on in the roof I don't know was it ever certain what happened you know as regards the origin of it the cause of it I don't know was it ever I mean the question that should be asked would be would the upper house be still there if it ne- if it if we never had the upper house fire 50 years ago I doubt it very much from what I remember it was basically all timber inside you know you had these um, pillars all right these uh, cast iron pillars supporting but basically the whole place was timber definitely a fire hazard there's no doubt about it they were all buildings bone dry ready to go and very very hot fires the fire and the destruction that it was causing was also as it were destroying part of their life and they were watching it being destroyed and you get this um, impression of all of this, these images and these memories that were going through people's minds. In the paper in the following day, there's messages of condolences just flooding in to the city from people all over the place, but particularly from other people in the theatre world and people perhaps who'd visited or had performed in Cork. And it was like a death. You could sense the shock. On the 12th of December, the opera house went up in flames. She was due back on the 13th of December. And I said, my goodness, I won't ring her. She may not come back. <laughs> so I met her on the morning after that tea in Svalon on Penrose Quay. And I said, I have very bad news. And she said, really? Has somebody died? And I said, no, it's far worse. The opera house has burned down. So I said, would you like to see? And we, along we went and we looked at the smouldering embers and I got nostalgic and a bit tearful again. And she said, stop that. Let's do something about it. It's got to be rebuilt. Let's try and make a few pounds and we'll start a bit of fundraising, which we did within a few weeks. For the people of Cork, really, for a lot of people, like, it was like a place of pilgrimage after the fire. I mean, the following day they were down and they were picking up bits of slate or bits of timber or masonry, bits of masonry, and they taking it away. Like It was a traumatic experience for the people of Cork to see this opera house go up. It was the following day, like, the full impact of it was done on ourselves and generally that, like, we've lost our opera house, you know. When you're actually fighting the fire, your main concern is to stop it, you know. Like, I mean, you don't see the opera house, you see the fire, do you know what I mean? I, I, w- I mean, I was only 24 years of age or 25 years of age. I wouldn't have had the same attachment to it as, say, people twice my age, you know. But still, like, I felt sad about it, really. I, I think it was only when the opera house burned down and it wasn't there anymore that I suddenly realised that I had had the most extraordinarily privileged childhood from the age of four to the time the place burned down in 1955. I would have been just coming up to my 11th birthday then. I took for granted that uh, I would be going into the opera house every Saturday and that I would be going in for dress rehearsals. And, you know, I took it for granted that I was going to see Joan Denise Moriarty and Alois Fleischmann uh, doing uh, ballets, you know. I took it for granted that I was going to see the late, great James N. Healy uh, doing Gilbert and Sullivan. And I remember the effect that the Mikado had on me, you know, because I'd never heard that music before, obviously, as a young boy, about five or six and uh, I remember when the curtain went back for the Mikado and that big, big chorus, if you want to know who we are, we are gentlemen of Japan. You know, and all these people, these magnificent costumes and, you know, the, the whirling and the flicking of the fans, you know, the oh, marvellous stuff. I think 
I was aware that I was uh, very, very privileged, but I was also very quickly made aware that I was looked on as a bit of an oddball because I remember going to school on a Monday after a matinee on a Saturday of Cork Ballet Company um, and saying to the fellow who sat next to me, are you going to the ballet this week? And he looked at me with sort of ill-concealed horror. These days it might be considered I had made an indecent proposal. The day after the fire I went down and I, I walked past it and there were all sorts of barriers and there were still the firemen were still dosing the flames and it was sad really. It was the end really the end of an era because it was something that I had really loved going to. I really loved the old opera house. And and, and that was the end of it. But we had no opera house and that was that was and it was there was a void then for a long time afterwards until James Inn uh, started doing the shows in the in the palace. So we did Student Prince and we did the um, Lilac Time. I was really sad, you know, but I wouldn't be showing emotion on the, on, on the sea. But I was really sad inside. It would get you, you know, inside that they, they all, all, our old theatre was gone. And it was like a second home to a lot of us, you know, at, at the, in those days. I mean, we frequented it so often so and so regularly that it would, be a, it would create a void in our lives. The fire in the Opera House came at a time when the the old ways of doing things were, were still there but weren't going to last terribly long. And when the new Opera House opened, they were still there and they were out to keep on for a certain period but it, it became very difficult, you know, after about a decade or so. Some of the groups were who had been in the old Opera House were in the new Opera House. There was a certain element of continuity but others weren't there and, you know, weren't going to come back. So it was very much a, a transition period. Deeply depressing. It, it was, if you like, the true, the truly democratic heart of Cork because every possible level of society went to the Opera House. There was no question of it. I would say that the burning of the Opera House uh, at that particular time cast a real sort of pall of gloom uh, over the city. It was a most horrific moment in the city's history because it was such a central place. I, I, I don't know, I mean, I can't really judge whether the present Opera House uh, has as much a place in the hearts of the citizens of Cork as the old Opera House had. The old Opera House was, it was ours, whereas, uh, I, I could be wrong, but I have a feeling that the, the present Opera House is theirs. In Early Doors No More, you heard the voices of Sheila Nivrian, Billa Connell, Kevin Power, Alicia St. Ledger, Geraldine Neeson, Bill Toomey, Harold Johnson, Donald Keneally, Chris Sheehan and Donald Crean. The program was produced by Alf McCarthy. <laughs>